This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. It truly is Kevin Randall here sitting in the seat. I normally have some kind of a rant here, and I was going to talk about uh, the people who just uh, uh, rate books on Amazon without bothering to tell us who they are or why they didn't like a book. And I think that is something that needs to be addressed in the future, so we won't go there. And I'm not going to address the cancel culture that's uh, going on in the UFO field as it is everywhere else. I just wanted to take a moment to mention once again uh, my good friend, Robert Cornett, passed away on April 1st. Uh, we had worked on a number of UFO investigations together. We had written a lot of books together, both science fiction and action adventure. Uh, we did UFO articles together on uh, in the magazines, for example. And I think he and I may have been the first civilians allowed into the Project Blue Book files once they were declassified. We had to go to Maxwell Air Force Base to do it, and we spent a week or 10 days down there going through the files. One of the things we did, and I think I've mentioned this before, is we went through the major, the master index and we wrote down the names of everybody who was uh, involved in an unidentified sighting, plus those who had uh, reported photographs and physical evidence cases and like this. I thought that was a unique document until I discovered that Bond Berliner had done the same thing, but he'd waited until the files got to the National Archives to do it. And now I learned that um, uh, Rob Mercer, in Ohio uh, was privy to getting a copy of the index with none, none of the names redacted. So we now have the entire list of everybody who reported UFOs or investigated about UFOs, um, uh, um, the whole list of everybody who was there. Anyway, um, Bob was a good friend. Uh, we hadn't seen much of each other in the last couple of years. He was on the program once and I was a little bit uh, upset by the program because he just wasn't the sharp person I remembered and I would have had him back, but he just didn't seem to be capable of doing a program with any kind of, um, um, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, I would say alacrity, but uh, audacity or uh, verbalization. He was just very slow and I think his mind was a little bit jumbled. I think it was a result of some of the things that he had experienced in his life. Anyway, um, he passed away. There's a article on my blog about him and what we had done together. It's also published on uh, the website, the blog of our publisher for the Vietnam Ground Zero books, which have just been reissued uh, over the last year or so. So if you get a chance, you might want to take a look at that and learn a little bit more about uh, Bob Cornett. Getting on to the important stuff, more important stuff. Um, today, of course, I'm going to be joined by Don Schmidt. We're going to talk about what's going on in the world of UFOs and today and what's happened in the past and some of the problems with it. So I'm going to welcome Don Schmidt to a different perspective once again. Once again, Kevin, and first of all, my condolences for the loss of Bob, because I know that you had worked many years with him. In fact, uh, you had co-authored many of the, the Saga magazine articles together, correct? We had done that. Um, and part of it was going through the blue book files and things like that. And we worked with official UFO at the um, Bernie O'Connor, who was the editor there. And uh, mm -hmm. one of the checks he sent to Bob, which was kind of funny, he said, uh, you know, here's your check. And the extra dollar is for to buy a beer. So <laughs> <laughs> that was that was nice. That was nice. And Bernie, Bernie O'Connor has been on the program, too, talking about his experience as editor of U official UFO. But during that period, in the mid 1970s, like six or seven magazines that were devoted to UFOs. Right. And you could make a good living by writing articles for all you of had them. UFO report, uh, was Saga UFO report, get true magazine. And uh, Argosy had a UFO report. Right. Um, so I did articles for all of that. Uh, the only article I ever wrote that my father was impressed with was one that showed up in the Argosy magazine, not their UFO 
magazine, but the regular magazine, is he said he remembered his father reading that magazine because Argosy, of course, went back into the older time frame. So that See, was my father of... always read Field and Stream and uh, Sports of Field. So <laughs> be away from that. But uh, but I have to point out to your audience, you were the first one, and especially for being one of the first researcher research investigators allowed to uh, actually purview, purview the uh, Blue Book files, that you were quick to point out, where are all the other military cases? Where are all the Navy cases, the Army, Marine Corps, that type of thing? That if this was the official investigation, how come it's 95% Air Force? What became of everything else? And now that question becomes more relevant than ever. Well, let me just say one thing. When we got to a Maxwell Air Force Base, we showed up and we had a letter from our ROTC detachment saying that we were an ROTC and give us any courtesies that uh, they deemed necessary. We got to the library, the archives there at Maxwell. We went up to the desk to talk to them and they weren't going to give us anything. And we were trying to convince them, trying to convince them, yeah, it's legit, we can be here. And this guy shows up in a nice business suit. It was Mr. Smith from Washington. And he ah. said, give these guys everything they want. We have no idea who he is, why he showed up there. But um, from that point on, they were very cooperative. The only thing they did tell us was, you know, we had the study rooms and they said that uh, if officers uh, in school, one of the schools down there needed the study room, we would have to vacate it. But that never happened. We never got kicked out of the, the room. So we had them all day long with the, <clears throat> the deals. And we were asking for cases specifically that we could right. think of. Right. And uh, somebody says, you know, there's an index. And we said, no, we'd like to see that now. <laughs> but as you pointed out by selecting specific cases, would we love to see the complete Socorro, New Mexico file, knowing that Blue Book hardly contains <laughs> the file, the photographs, the uh, metal uh, analysis, that type of thing? Uh, I would like to see I would like to see the entire Leveland case because oh, yes. when I was writing, when I was writing the book Leveland, um, I discovered that the sheriff of Hockley County, and I hate his name, Weir Clem, but that's his name. <laughs> that's his name. Um, led a mini convoy out to search for the object. It was right. he and a deputy behind them was a car with the um, Texas Department of Public Safety officers in it, the state police, and behind them was a car of Air Force officers. And that was, the, you know, as I was researching that book, that's the first time anybody had said Air Force officers being involved. Well, we know that uh, the sheriff saw the object because that's reported in the Blue Book files, but we also know now that he got much closer and his car was stalled. Mm -hmm. And if his car was stalled, then the car behind him was stalled and the air car with the Air Force officers was stalled. I so the question an EM effect on all those vehicles, electromagnetic yes. spectrum, on all those cars. Wow. But the question to be asked is, where are the statements from the Air Force officers? Precisely. And now that they're, you not in, they're not in the Blue Book files at all. No, no. and now that you mention it, that we would learn afterwards, like the Dexter Ann Arbor, Michigan, sightings of 66, that Heineck had spent the better part of an afternoon with an Air Force officer who also happened to be a witness and totally excluded from the report. It was like like he never was there. And so uh, I mean that became their pattern that they could they could easily explain away civilian and especially they made extra efforts to go after law enforcement like the Ohio uh, police chase with uh, Quintanella at Blue Book calling up the police chief and saying tell me about the hallucination your men just had that type of thing. Well, I think we look at a lot of the cases and we can see where there are gaps in the knowledge but we also know based on the documentation in the blue book files as a matter of fact that after 1953 the whole point was to explain the cases right. it wasn't to investigate them it was to explain them and be right. little the witnesses and i've talked about that on this program a number of times especially again with the Leveland case how they attempted to be little the witnesses there so that you move it from a different arena and i just was watching uh, the newsroom which is the old hbo uh, Aaron Sorkin mm. program series. It was on HBO well, 10 years ago. And in the very last episode of the first season, he's giving a whole list of the, the things the Tea Party has alleged, which right. now seems to have flipped to the point where it's uh, the other side of the aisle is making the same allegations. But one of the things he said there was all, it was all about the power, maintaining their power. And that's Already where we are. 
That's oh. where we are in the UFO field. Why, why is the cover-up persisting? It's to maintain their power. And it doesn't matter that this is a small part of the government. Any admission that they do not have the power is something they cannot stand. So they have to belittle the, the UFO field, but they do it throughout every, every other aspect of the government, the important parts of the government down to the UFO part of it. Well, you make an excellent point in that uh, we would take it personal that we would uh, see this as strictly being just the UFO community, but it's across the board. It's like if you don't maintain the party line, if you speak as far out in any manner or fashion, uh, you are immediately smeared, your reputation tainted, whatever it takes, uh, to, you know, silence you. And, uh, and worse than that, uh, make you an example that anyone else would dare ever you know, speak out in disfavor of uh, some of the alleged transparency that we, uh, that's why we're asking, you know, in, in the last couple of years, why now? Why now this apparent transparency when we're really not seeing anything? They're not coming out with any case reports, any investigations. They talk about what they've done, but uh, again, there's no meat on the plate, so to speak. Well, I'm going to have to take a break here because this is a good place to stop because I want to flip over to the report that just came out yesterday from The Sun talking right. about this big dump of 1,574 documents as if there's something there. And they're talking about how it talks about uh, alien abductions and, and cattle mutilations and all these relevant parts of the UFO field. Um, so we have to take a look at that and look at the entirety of that uh, that document. I have uh, additional information up on my blog, of course, at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And for those of you who are interested in the level land stuff that we've mentioned briefly, uh, the book is out. You can get it at Amazon. Please take a look at it and please give us a rating. We will be back right after this. So please stick around. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, Simultv.com, Simultv.com. What's Simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a Simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about Simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, Sonny Boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, Sonny Boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about Simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. And we are back. I'm here with Don Schmidt. I probably shouldn't say I'm here. He's at his house and I'm at my house. <laughs> but, but we're uh, still conversing here. What better place to be, though, right? Yes. Um, when we went away, we had just sort of touched on the newest investigation into UFOs, where we've changed the name to UAPs, and I refuse to use that name. I do, too. And just yesterday, as I mentioned, the Sun, it's, I guess a Bridges tabloid. British tabloid, correct. Um, had published a story about a dump of one thousand. They, they had been FOIA, filed a FOIA case. You know how my, my, my I turned a corner there very quickly. Um, pub, had sent a FOIA request to the military, the government, the Pentagon, asking for all these documents, and they just received a pile of them, one thousand five hundred and seventy-four pages, I believe. And they mentioned how they had abductions in it and there was a big sector all this stuff about ufos and moving into the paranormal as well with poltergeists and crop circles oh, and exactly. the whole thing it turns out that this is nothing new right. um i called my good friend john greenwald 
to ask him about it. Because I think this is the stuff we've already seen, and he's he confirmed it. And it was all it's all up at his website, uh, blackvault.com. So you can you can look at the documents, and I'll have a link uh, to his uh, this specific part of his uh, website uh, at my blog. My mind has just sort of wandered away for some reason. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, we have uh, a look at all those documents. Thirty-eight pages of the one thousand five hundred and seventy-four deal with UFOs, and it was a thing written by Kit Green, right. and even it's somewhat problematic. So it's not a great revelation, I don't think. No, you're familiar with this material as well, aren't you, Don? Well, yes, and and to me it was reminiscent. If you recall, when they made a big splash, the media about the guy Hytel FBI internal memo to Hoover about all these other recovered crashes in New Mexico, and you and I both had exposed that document as as being an internal hoax many years ago. And yet, it when it when it came out again, it was resurrected many years after the fact, and they presented it as though it was new information. It was breakthrough information confirming that Roswell did happen. That if these other crashes took place, then I mean that Roswell certainly you know it, it was was the first one, and and I think that's why when we're dealing with so many people within the UFO community who don't know the history. They haven't been there to realize that this has been this dangling carrot that has been in front of us now for 75 years. And there are those who would suggest, well, they're testing the waters, that they're just seeing what the public reaction is, that, or they're seeing how gullible we are in just taking the ball and running with it when there's nothing there. And I think you and I both would agree there's, there's nothing there. There are no case reports. There's no detail as to any investigations. To me, it smacks of, you know, uh, many of the, the former civilian UFO groups who would catalog all these reports, but they were never investigated. So you never had any final conclusions. And the fact that they would love, and we certainly would agree that there is some paranormal uh, overlap within the UFO community. But the idea that they would throw in portergeists and ghosts and other manifestations suggesting that it was all part of this you know, the same uh, enigma, it just muddies the waters. Because why can't you focus? Why can't you at least provide us with a number of cases that you have actually investigated? And what were your conclusions? Interesting. I got an email this morning, and I, I'm sure you saw it as well, from Mike Swords, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, talking about this as well. And he'd, he'd look through the documents. I sent the link to um, everybody on that one list last night. You know, if right. you want to look at the documents, here's, right. here they all are. And there's uh, a whole bunch of reports there, but almost none of them relate to UFOs. It's looking at uh, uh, other aspects of the aviation industry, if you will, or space flight that from, from NASA, not alien space flight, from, but from NASA. And we just have that one small report. And it talks about there being, I think, 42 cases of people injured with uh, close encounters of UFOs. And I, I think they're talking Cash Landrum because Kit Green mentioned uh, John Schusler specifically. It did. And, and I think you would agree with me. I don't believe Cash Landrum had anything to do with a UFO. There are some very, very deep problems with it with that case. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking also of, of uh, Bent Waters, um, John Burroughs, right. who, who was apparently his health was compromised by the close approach or his close approach to the UFO and that sort of thing. But they said there's three other 300 other cases, but they don't tell us who no. he doesn't tell us who they are, what they are, what, 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 where they're going. It just does us no good at all. See, to me, it, all, it reads like a wish list that they're trying to solicit some funding, some grants, and here's what we could work on here. If you give us the money, this is what we could look into. Well, this was all a part of that uh, Bigelow mm -hmm. um, Aerospace, right? Read twenty-two million dollars that was uh, uh, sent to to Bigelow's company to do this, and it seems to be that yes, you're right that it was some sort of here's our preliminary research. We need more funding, but the apparently the Pentagon or the other members of the government didn't realize it wasn't going anywhere and shut the whole thing down. So the other money never showed up. Right. right. But but we're left with the UAPs. 
And I say that to separate them from the UFOs, the UAPs that were reported by the Navy last year, which again, um, and, and I've said this many times on this program, just isn't a very good report, and they haven't followed up on it. No. And so we're, we're locked into this uh, waiting game with everybody talking about disclosure, but disclosure is not going to happen. They have no motivation to disclose. No, 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 because we keep asking, why now? What precipitated as far as any of this at the moment? It's not as though there was a mass sighting that they couldn't explain away. It wasn't as though, you, you might even suggest that uh, certainly if the uh, the 1952 Washington overflights took place today, that it may then cause some type of official response in that regard. But this was out of nowhere. This was like, okay, why does the Navy now feel it you know, has to say anything on this topic? And that's why we're all scratching our heads. Okay, what's the ne their next move? What's the next step? And they could quietly just, because as we always see, the media, it's a 24-hour news cycle. That every so often there's a little flurry of information, and then again, it just fades to total obscurity. And I think the smartest thing that the Navy sees that they could do right now is just go back to business as usual. And the only ones that would be nipping at their ankles would be a handful of ufologists. And who have no real platforms. Right, right, right. Um which is a very good way to dismiss us uh, as, as investigators. You have no platform, so we don't care what you say. Uh, I, I just um, am, am boggled by the acceptance of our colleagues, many of our colleagues in the UFO field, to this idea that this is the first steps toward disclosure. Mm -hmm. and, and I get that question periodically. You know, uh, do you think we're moving toward disclosure? And I'm thinking, no, we're, we're, what we're doing is we're doing the same thing we did in 1948, which was the government the Air Force, the military is very interested in UFOs. We're going to investigate it. Oh, there's nothing to it. Right. And I right. think we're in that, that again, it's, a, as I say, twining 2.0. We're doing the same thing we did 70 years ago, and it's not going to advance us any further. You recall that at the beginning of our Roswell investigation, and especially in contact with many officers within the military, that we were, we were learning, we were hearing of this growing faction within the Pentagon that does want this to all come out. You can just imagine all the, the young officers, they would love to have access. They would love to, love to have some of the truth once and for all. And then as Project Mogul and then crash dummy reports came out, we saw that they were nailing the lid down even tighter. I personally see this as their way of giving them another 75 years that they're going to claim that we're working on it but, you know, give us another five years, give us another 10 years, that type of thing. And as long as they've created a, a new department of looking into the UAPs, they can say, we need more time. We need more time. And that's always been, you know, the MO of even law enforcement. You know, I just need more time working on it, working on it every day. Well, I was, I was thinking, you know, one of the problems is you mentioned the younger officers, but if they're career officers, they're going to do nothing to damage their careers. Right, right. And although they may be interested in finding out what they can about UFOs or Roswell, uh, they're not going to damage their career by searching too strenuously for it. Uh, because the idea, uh, especially in a volunteer military, you're making this a career. You want to hang on as long as you possibly can. And if you create waves, then you get marked and you're passed over for promotions. And I think the idea is you uh, you get uh, two chances. And if you're not promoted on the third chance, you're out. Right, um, right. But and I, I don't think we're going to be providing it to a lot of the junior officers. I think by the time you reach field grades, you are much more trustworthy because you're not uh, you're more indoctrinated, I suppose. I could say, uh, you know, the second lieutenants, if you don't move to first lieutenant, you're really bad because nearly 95% move to, to first lieutenant. Same thing to captain. When you take the step to major moving into the field grades, well, they narrow it a little bit and you've got major and lieutenant colonel. When you go to colonel, it's narrowed even more. And then of course you get to general and it's really narrowed. And, you know, that's the ultimate goal of, of the junior officers is get into the, into the higher ranks. So I, I think that, you know, hoping that these younger officers are going to blow the whistle, I think is pretty much a pipe dream. 
because they'll be shut down uh, immediately, if not sooner. So I, I, I think we can suggest a disclosure isn't coming in the very near future. And if it does come, it's going to be at the result of the aliens landing somewhere where they can't right. be denied. And, and that then the, uh, the whole thing is out of our hands. I mean, for those of us who hope that um, the end game would involve congressional hearings, that whistleblowers would be provided immunity, that they could finally come forward and testify without fear of any repercussion. But with the midterms coming up, and as soon as the midterms are over, and then they immediately go into the next presidential uh, campaign cycle, when is there this safe opening that they would even risk, like a Dennis Kucinich, even mentioning that he had a, a sighting? And how? Well, let, me, let me interrupt here because we're going to have to we're going to have to take our break. When we come back, I think we're going to move on to alien abductions and some of the other aspects of it. I think we covered this pretty well, so we'll be back right after this. With Don Schmidt talking about UFOs and where the field's going and that sort of thing. So please stick around. Do you enjoy paranormal sci-fi romance, yet find yourself tired of the same old themes and storylines? Then you won't want to miss Kahir O'Donnell's latest exciting release, To Taste You Again. Alien Lord Kane McKean knew the moment that his destined mate was born. He watched from afar, waiting for her to grow from child to woman. However, before she was old enough, she was stolen from her home world by flesh pirates. Kane searched ten long years to find her held in a suspension chamber a ten-year-old girl in a woman's body. He rescued her and swore to give her time to grow up, but with his very life depending upon winning her as a mate, has he waited too long? Get your copy today. To Taste You Again by Kahira O'Donnell is now available on Amazon or kahiraodonnell.com. are back. I'm joined with by Don Schmidt. We're talking about UFOs. What else? Um, I think we pretty well exhausted this disclosure nonsense. And I, I, I see it as nonsense, even though I, I think a lot of the UFO field wants it to go in that direction. Well, um, one final comment regarding that. I think you would agree that in most cases, the old order took it with them. They died with it. They did not pass it on to the new. And because of that, no one knows where to look for it right now. And as a result, I don't think they would recognize it if they, they'd even locate it. They'd even find it. And so they're just much in the dark as we are in, in many aspects. Well, as I say, I think the deep state's keeping control of the information as it is so much else. And it's going to be up to them to decide that... Um, it will not harm their power structure if they tell us UFOs are real. I think that's one of, that's the reason, that is the absolute reason that uh, we don't know what's going on, what the government holds in the way of UFO information. Um, you know, you and I have been around the UFO field for ever in a week. <laughs> <laughs> I think between the two of us, we know everybody or knew everybody yeah. and contacted everybody, lost, spoken with everybody. We lost a lot of, a lot of colleagues too. Yeah. Oh, oh, certainly, certainly. Um, I, I've met Don Kehoe, for example. Um, of course, uh, Alec, Alan Hynek. I knew Jim and Carl Lorenzen very well. Um, talked to Bud Hopkins. Um, never really talked to um, John Mack. By I've asked. I, I, but I, but I, that's why I say between the, between the two of us. Yeah. So when we mention John Mack and we get into the abduction phenomenon, my personal opinion, and I, I said this the other day, uh, committing ufological suicide because in, in ufology, and that's, I mentioned, mentioned earlier about the cancel culture inside of UFO research. You have to embrace everything. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. cannot question any aspect of it. Otherwise you're branded, not a skeptic, but a debunker. Doesn't matter what information you have and how it relates to this whole thing. You are branded as a debunker. Uh, 
when we talk about UFOs, it is my opinion, based on everything that I've seen, that the vast majority of abductions have terrestrial explanations. Mm -hmm. There are very few, and I think of them as targets of opportunity, where an alien abduction may have taken place. Right. And I'm thinking Barney and Betty Hill, mm -hmm. Pascagoula, right. um, Travis Walton. Um, I, I was going to say Terry Loveless, but I, I suspect Terry Loveless may have been involved in some kind of OSI experimentation that uh, has kind of fogged his memory of that. I don't know if he was really abducted or it was some kind of OSI operation he was sucked into. But, I, you know, I believe he's telling the truth as he sees it, which may not be based in our reality. Uh, abduction phenomena, your your opinions? Well, as you just said, I think as even the, the researchers would explain that most of these people believe what they described. They believe exactly what transpired as they described it. Uh, the fact that 75% of these cases involve or require regression becomes pro problematic to begin with because depending on the individual doing the regression, very often they are coached, they are led. I think it's one of the reasons that we're able to distinguish between the people that work with Bud Hopkins versus the people that work with Dr. David Jacobs and, and then those who work with the late uh, John Mack. That because of their approaches, because of their personal influence as to the individual, the, uh, the elect abductee, that in Bud's case, for example, his people all believed that they were violated, that they were intruded on. Now, hence the, the very title of one of his best-selling books, Intruders. And with Dave Jacobs, it's a case of, well, we're, they're all being used as a, the creation of a hybrid race, the threat, this infiltration that they're all taking you know, over within high positions of, of the government and uh, education and, and that type of thing. And then with Dr. John Mack, because of his environmental leanings, that these were all select people who were chosen as vanguards to lean us into as far as this new environmental utopia, to clean the, the planet up, that type of thing. So I think right there is, is a giveaway for the fact that depending on the person doing the investigation, that there's nothing pristine about the information. There's nothing virgin as to for all the books, all the influence within television and the movies. Uh, even when Heineck was still alive, we would talk about the fact that, and he did that test with um, the magician, uh, I'll think of it in a minute, up in Canada, and the great Kreskin, great Kreskin. And they did a, a po an audience, a group hypnosis with a post-hypnotic suggestion that at, they would all go outside the theater and at the ringing of a bell, they would all glance upward and start describing a UFO. And that's precisely what they did. And they, each one of them described it in vivid detail, but each one different than the person next to them, that type of thing. And obviously there was nothing actually there. And I'm afraid that that often is the case with these missing time experiences, that more times than not, the imagery is already there from prior you know, environmental experiences. And then the question is how much of it has been coached? How much have, have they been influenced by the researcher? And then what actually can you take away as being a genuine experience? And I, I believe we would agree that it, it, it becomes very minute, it's very small. And that you can count the number of potential legitimate cases maybe on one hand. I think that John Mack kind of validated that statement. He had said at one point, I think at the UFO conference or the abduction conference held at uh, MIT a number of years ago, Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind, he, uh, he mentioned that there was a curious matching between the uh, researcher and the experiencer, meaning, mm -hmm. as you pointed out, Bud Hopkins got the scientific intruders mm -hmm. and David Jacobs got the hybrids and he got the Eastern philosophy. And my immediate thought, and I don't understand why John Mack didn't realize that because he was a trained psychiatrist, is you know, a medical doctor, that it suggests a uh, 
influence, a yep. contamination by right. the man conducting the uh, hypnotic regression sessions. He right. didn't see that way. And somebody at L.A. Uh, MUFON asked him that question specifically. The guy wrote to me afterwards. And Max said, I never said anything like that. He said, but I may have thought it at one time, which is as good as admitting it. But if you go to Brian's book, uh, Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind, you can find that statement in the book. And Russ Estes had a videotape of Mac saying that. And it's where I saw it for the first time was Mac saying that very thing. So we've got a phenomenon that's been created um, with very little in the way of evidence at all, other than these hypnotic regression sessions and the way they were... Uh, talking about the um, uh, the experiences themselves. When I was doing the investigation with Pat Roach out in Utah, and I brought in Jim Harder, who turns out to be something less of a dispassionate scientist. We could both tell you stories about the late James Harder, yes. But, but he, um, uh, we would talk to Pat between sessions and I realized sometime later that what he was doing, although I don't think he realized it, in his attempts to calm her down and make her understand this is not something that's that's uh, um, dangerous for you, uh, would feed her information. And he would talk, he talked to her, I remember, about Betty Hill, saying that she thought there were a lot of little Betty Hills running around out there now because mm -hmm. they had extracted um, genetic material from her. And in the very next session, Pat Roach says, well, I don't remember being examined, but I know I was. Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't remember it, how do you know? How do you know? That kind of thing. But it, but it was right after Harder had talked about Betty Hill's experiences. And so you have to take a look at that sort of thing and realize uh, that. I think it was um, Bud Hopkins who challenged us, well, show, us, show me anywhere I've led the witness. And I did a posting on my blog that said challenge accepted. And I re and I reprinted part of one of his transcripts and you can see him leading the, the witness there where the witness says, well, I don't remember anything more. And he says, well, yes, you can. You know, we've, we've got to dig deeper. Now, think of it as an elevator. You're going down into a lower level or all these things that work around the, the, um, the witnesses inability to recall stuff and literally forcing them to create some kind of a scenario for them. And so if you take a look and you read the transcripts carefully, you see that sort of thing. And I believe that's where, and we would mutually support uh, Travis Walton, that for his five days absence, that for all the attempts to take him deeper and deeper down into the rabbit hole, he has never come up with anything new. There's nothing there. And he hasn't provided. He could easily have fallen into that trap. And just for the sake of, you know, making himself more noteworthy, more attractive as far as to the new audience, the new generation of ufologists. And he is telling the exact same story that he began with, you know, back in 1975. So, you know, you mentioned in, in James Harder. The last conversation I had with Harder, he was trying to convince me that we are being visited by over 120 different species, races. Of aliens, can you imagine falling into his hands? It's not a, it just a, it's not enough that you've been abducted. He's going to try to determine which planet, you know, you know your visitors where are from. Um, total contamination. And I don't, I, I don't think Carl and Jim Lorenzen ever went down that rabbit hole, um, but they were more open to the idea of alien abduction and that sort of thing than say NICAP was. Of course they were. Um, but I, I just I just wonder how much of that information is now stored in files somewhere that if we could get our hands on it might give us some clues to what's going on. I know uh, we had said, and I say we, uh, Russ Estes, Bill Cohn and I, when we were doing our abduction work, that it seemed that there was an overrepresentation of the homosexual population in the abduction mm -hmm. uh, community. Not saying anything pejorative about it, we just noticed this statistical anomaly. And it got to me thinking, what other statistical anomalies might there be? Uh, I think Mark Rodiger talked about uh, uh, too many left-handed people being involved. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. But his sample was relatively small. I wondered about blood type. Mm -hmm. Because here are, here are traits that are invisible 
And yet, if you find an overrepresentation in these populations, it might give us some clues to what's going on. But I think it all really relates back to the uh, person conducting the hypnotic regression. It does. It does. And, and yet you also, as far as that, there is a, a commonality. There's a pattern. There's a, a, a group of people that seem to be more prone. One of the things that was also uh, discovered is that these typically are people that are more psychically inclined that they are even into like astral projection and out-of-body experiences, which means that they're already one foot through that looking glass, so to speak. They, again, use that Alice in Wonderland uh, analogy. And so, yeah, one could say that that's the reason that they're selected because they're already, you know, linked. They're, they're somehow in tune with this outside force. But well, uh, let's, 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 hold it, let's hold it there for just a minute because I'm going to have to take a break. Uh, we'll continue our discussion on abductions, which I think is probably going to offend a lot of people. So I'll be back with Don Schmidt right after this. So please stick around. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, simultv.com, simultv.com. What's simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about Simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, Sonny Boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, Sonny Boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about Simultv.com. SIMULTV.com. And we are back. With Don Schmidt, obviously, this time. We were talking about alien abductions and that sort of thing and uh, sort of throwing ourselves under the bus uh, with our discussion of abductions. May I, may, the, uh, may I comment regarding that quickly? Yes. Uh, the idea that any time you talk about peer review, you talk about where you and I have often criticized that, well, okay, but you haven't proven Roswell. But all these years, the investigation has remained fluid. We've made every effort to you know, find the physical proof necessary. You would think with the abduction cases, you would have the greatest chance of securing physical proof because you have an actual interaction. And as a result, here we are for the same amount of years, and we're still wanting. And it, it goes both ways, people. I mean, don't challenge us as far as, well, you haven't proven your case. The point being, you also haven't proven yours. And there are many more people working on abduction research, or there have been through the years, than ever were working on Roswell. Well, I think that when we look at the uh, abduction case, we have to look at the logistics. And I've, I've said this before as well. Uh, the Roper Organization did a poll commissioned by a number of uh, UFO researchers and organizations to see if we could determine how many people might have been abducted. And there were, I think it was six critical questions you had to answer one way, and that would suggest you probably you may have had an abduction experience. And when they um, figured out the statistics of that, the statistical analysis of it, um, it was virtually zero. So right. they removed one of the questions which I don't think is a good scientific way of doing this thing. But, but then they came up, well, maybe three, three to six million people had been abducted in the United States. And I'm thinking, okay, what about Canada? What about South America and Australia and Asia and Europe and Africa? This would be tens of millions of people having been abducted. Where are all the spacecraft parked? And where again, 
is the physical proof. But but it's just logistically impossible that with that much going on that they wouldn't have the kind of proof that would convince anybody. Um, so we're we're back to the idea. I think that we, if we're, we're going to talk about abductions, and it's kind of where I'm sitting on them, uh, in in the in the program, that if it's a, a single abduction, that's probably much more likely than these longitudinal studies that are claimed by some people, where they're abducted time after time after time and year after year after year to kind of follow their um, family history or their history or their progression through life. It just doesn't make any sense to me at all. And it, and it doesn't seem that it logically follows because you've got to introduce interstellar flight to, to get to that point. And we just don't understand the, again, the logistics or the uh, problems of interstellar flight. Well, then you also add the, uh, the level of human arrogance, the idea that after you've abducted a few earthlings, you realize is, you know, we're all pretty much the same. And the idea that unless they are actually harvesting something, as some have alluded to, that what would be the ongoing purpose, the agenda, that this would be going on every night as far as somewhere around the world. You know, in, in mentioning even some of the prominent abduction researchers in the uh, last section, last segment, and the thought that one of them specifically believes that anyone and everyone who has ever had so much as a UFO sighting has potentially been abducted. And we need to, we need to talk to you. We need to regress you because there's something more there. And he would then, as we also, we both know, that whatever information you hope to you claim of a case you have to get in that first session because any subsequent hypnosis uh, will feed on the previous and then it, it influences each one thereafter. And then I would hear that he would have people regress up to a couple dozen times before they would finally say something. And it was like, gotcha. We knew it was there. And again, there's nothing scientific about that. <sighs> There's really, really nowhere else to go with the abduction phenomenon. I have, I have argued for years, decades, that we're stuck in what would be in psychology we'd be called case studies. We haven't progressed into anything to suggest moving beyond that. Any kind of scientific analysis that can be made um, in the in the abduction field. It's the same thing over and over again. When somebody comes, they've been abducted. We collect the information, we publish it, and we go to the next person. We don't. Uh, really have a way of um, quantifying the information. How do we know how good it is? And uh, I think when we look at the abduction phenomenon, we're kind of stuck there and we should be far, far beyond that in today's environment, especially with everybody having cellular their phones with cameras in it and the way we can record everybody having doorbells with uh, video on them. And we've got a number of sightings where the, the UFO was seen or recorded on a doorbell camera and how many cases, criminal cases have been solved because of all these security cameras that are out there now. And we just don't get the kind of thing that you would expect us to get if the abduction phenomenon was continuing in the way they've been suggesting. Don't you find it also very telling that uh, with the uh, recent passing of Dr. Leo Sprinkle and certainly before him, James Harder, and then we lost Bud Hopkins and just before him, Dr. John Mack and uh, Dr. David Jacobs is no longer, uh, as far as working on these cases, that who has stepped up? You would think if that was the true pay dirt, that's what pretend, you know, will pretend to provide the true breakthroughs, that there would be all these students in the, in the uh, offing ready to step forward and say, now we're taking it to the next level. And I, I know like Yvonne Smith out in California, dear friend, I mean, yeah, she certainly is, is of that level, but that's about it. So in other words, after Yvonne should retire, who is even left to pick up this gauntlet? Well, I think you kind of touched on something here with the whole UFO field. If we begin to look at who the people are uh, doing the research or continuing the research, it's, I think, what Rich Reynolds called this old geezers. 
<laughs> there's, there's no, there's not the youngsters coming up to uh, for the the research. They've gone in different directions, or they've been um, seduced by the dark side. Their minds were made up, right? Yeah, yeah. When I say seduced by the dark side, I mean the people that are out there um, claiming that they they were abducted in the night when they were seventeen years old, taken to Mars, fought a war on Mars against the aliens for twenty years, and put back into the bed fifteen minutes after they were abducted. And people are actually believing this nonsense. Like some new video game, right? You know, it just you have to take a look at it scientifically. Um, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about some of the Roswell witnesses we've seen blow up <laughs> in the last um, time frame here, including um, Frank Hoffman, obviously, Glenn Dennis, um, Gerald Anderson, or, or maybe we could start off with MJ-12. I think because we were talking about documentation in the Hoddle memo a while ago. But MJ-12, I think, is pretty much accepted as a hoax by the vast majority of people now, but there's a small cadre that continue to cling to it. Continue to perpetuate the idea that uh, the documents are, are, are genuine. And yet when they surfaced back in 87, as far as to our uh, knowledge, we were the ones, you and I specifically, we were going out to Los Angeles and we were attempting to sit down and meet with Bill Moore and Jamie Chanderay. Chanderay, who had received anonymously, you know, the film as far as a canister of the photograph documents and uh, with the uh, Albuquerque, uh, as far as return address. And we were later, you know, quick to find, you know, determine who that was. And so it became part of that whole cabal that were promising us this truckload of documents that it was all going to happen any day. And they strung us along to the point that, again, without any form of legitimacy. And as you, above you know, all the others, demonstrated that the documents, the format, the wording, even the categorization of the 12, you know, was nothing military, was nothing as far as... Uh, there's nothing kosher about the way these documents were even prepared. And again, we have to base this on, on historic fact. If they don't line up, if they don't match as far as other documents from that time period and uh, as far as the information contained therein, the fact that it would, they, the documents would even mention the Del Rio case, which is totally blown up. Why would you mention Del Rio, but then for the same people that defended the planes of San Augustine, there's no mention of the planes in the MJ-12 documents. Well, you know, Stan Friedman challenged me once to prove there was no UFO crash on the planes of San Augustine. So as a joke, I sent him a copy of the Eisenhower yeah, briefing document. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he said, it's not mentioned there. And then he has to, he's coming up with all the excuses. Well, if it was a legitimate crash, why wouldn't it be mentioned there? Well, they didn't want to give all the information away. You're talking about a briefing. You're preparing for the president. You're going to leave information out. So if he finds out about it, you've now lost your job type yeah. thing. I but I, you know, he didn't tell me about that one, right? <laughs> but it's, it's just that sort of thing. I, I think that the, the problem was... The UFO field, we've lost our ability for critical thinking. Um, and we've, we just lost our, we've lost our historic, uh, uh, as far as uh, perspective, in that the historians are now the old geezers who are pushed off to the wayside. You guys should retire. You know, you didn't solve it. Now it's our chance. Well, but you have to know the history. You have to recognize why, as we both agreed at the beginning of the program, that there is no disclosure forthcoming because they've, they've done this to us time and time again. And it always leaves us with this feeling that, well, the very arbiters of the cover-up we're now to believe, the people that have been sitting on this for 75 years, now we trust them. Now we, we, we accept their pronouncements as being gospel. No, no. That's where the history comes in. And that's why the old geezers are the ones that are still going to lead the way. Well, I think we're going to have to take a break here because it's time once again. Uh, as I say, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com for additional information. Don's website is? Down at the moment. It's being rebuilt. Down at the moment. Yes. <laughs> <Dot> com. <laughs> Dot com, yeah. Down at the moment. <laughs> 
Well, well, there you go. And uh, my latest book is um, Understanding Roswell. And we look at the look at MJ-12 in that once again, because I think it's an important thing to understand the Roswell case to understand uh, MJ-12 and how it's blown up. We will be back right after this. So please stick around. And we are back. I'm here with Don Schmidt. We're talking about um, UFOs and a lot of that sort of thing. And when we went away, we were kind of chatting about MJ-12. And uh, I mentioned understanding Roswell. And what I wanted to bring up about MJ-12 is I got a criticism from somebody who looked at the book and said, well, you don't mention the signatures. Um, and I I see the, the the classic fatal flaw in the MJ-12 document is the discussion of the Del Rio, Del Rio case, the Del Rio crash, which of course is a hoax. But what they was he was talking about specifically was the signature on the Truman memo that goes along with these documents and how it is a lift of a signature from a document from October 1st of um, 1947 uh, it's a it's a document that relates in in that time frame with Truman's name. It, it is historically not um, centered properly on the document the way Truman always did that. Right. It um, has a extra loop on the on the H, mm-hmm. and so it makes it very distinctive in that. And that too is a, a evidence that the document is a forgery. And yet people would say, well, he maybe signed this document with a one of those uh, automatic pens or the robo pens with a connection of four pens together and you can sign four documents at once. And I'm thinking if you're creating some kind of document like this, you're not going to put it into that kind of a device. It's going to be something that um, you sign individually. So there's, there's, there's all these kinds of problems with it. And yet every time we come up with one of the problems with the MJ-12 documents, they come up with some far-fetched excuse. And I, I, I say, what, at what point do we decide that's one step too many? That's one stone too many on the pile, and it's now crushed the whole document. How many mistakes do they get? Well, and their attempt to rationalize every mistake, every concern, everything that is pointed out, it, it doesn't matter. And it's not so much their desire to believe as much as they would like to prove it's wrong. And I think that's it almost becomes an obsession with many of them that it's beyond, oh, yeah, okay, right, okay, you got me. I stand corrected as much as, well, but you can't be right all the time. Well, it's not a matter of being right all the time. It's just being a, a case of being right when we need to be. And God knows I've made mistakes. God knows I have, you know, you know, you know trusted and believed. And not, for, not so much for wanting or a desire to, but that I would listen to the wrong people, that I would listen to the scientists. As I, I, I often state now, I, I, I believe in science. I no longer believe in scientists because I find that so many of them have preconceived theories and opinions, and um, they, 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 uh, you know, they, they use the novice for spreading nonsense more times than not, and uh, then they get away with it. Um, the MJ-12 documents, I mean, you and I both would agree that certainly given that Roswell, if we accept that it did happen, that there would have been some form of an oversight committee appointed, something that would even oversee the office of the president, that would continue on from an administration to administration with the hope that you would garner some answers, that you would come up with some resolution as to what you were dealing with back at that time. But... Um, the, the, the documents themselves, no, no. Um, the, they haven't won that debate, that argument, as far as work, as you just said at the, the, at the last segment. Um, there's only a handful of people that still hold on to them as genuine. I noticed that I had Ryan Wood on the program, who was a great proponent of MJ-12, um, a while back. As well as his dad, right, Robert. Well, I, but I had, I had uh, Ryan on the program, and he just didn't seem to have much knowledge. It's like he'd forgotten a great deal about the MJ-12 documents, and I haven't heard him um, 
around lately. I do, their, their website has not been updated in a quite a long time. And I, I know Ryan Wood would hold his crash conferences in Las Vegas on a yearly basis. And there hasn't been one of those for a decade or more. And you and I attended, I believe it was uh, the last one that they held in Vegas. And I think Ryan pretty much dropped out of the field shortly thereafter. Is it because MJ-12 blew up or is it because of other factors? I mean, some people drop. I dropped out of the field for a while because the military sent me to Iraq. Of course. <laughs> so I had a good excuse, but. That's not a good excuse. No, I think with Ryan, it was a case of, uh, it was financial, that the Vegas conventions weren't drawing, they weren't making you know the, the money that would, uh, provide him with a uh, you know an annual sustenance uh, income that type of thing. At least that was that was the, the word that I had. Well, I just I wondered about that. You know, some of the greatest proponents of some of these aspects of the UFO field have uh, since gone away, and as maybe they got other interests, or they matured, or they um, became discouraged for some reason, or they got tired of everybody yelling at them for not accepting every every little aspect of the field. Uh, well, then you recall that uh, the Woods uh, became the recipients of all these Tim Cooper documents that essentially uh, solidified, they endorsed the MJ-12 documents that uh, they, they further, you know, attempted to substantiate the notion that uh, the very term magic, Majestic 12, were in all these other documents. And even uh, Stan Friedman disavowed any of those documents as genuine. He he held on to his original, but at least he uh, also discounted any of these subsequent papers. Well, I think with Stan Friedman, the reason he would do that is he wasn't the centerpiece. You make a good uh, point. They they didn't send the documents to him, yeah. and and it's kind of like Gerald Anderson, where Gerald Anderson became the centerpiece of the Plains of St. Augustine thing, and and even after we proved repeatedly that Gerald Anderson had lied, he wasn't a Navy SEAL, he wasn't um, on the Plains of St. Augustine in 1947. He identified his anthropology teacher from high school as the leader of the archaeological expedition to the Plains. Buskirk, Winfred Buskirk, right? Yeah. Winfred Buskirk, exactly. Um, he'd taken anthropology from him at the Albuquerque High School. Um, and even when we kept showing information after information that this didn't take place, Stan refused to, um, to accept it. One of the things that I, learned, I, I found later in some of the files that I have is I had talked to people at the um, Albuquerque High School. Mm-hmm. And they, they were looking at the transcripts of Gerald Anderson when Anderson said he didn't take the anthropology class. And, of course, they're looking at the transcripts and said, yes, he took the anthropology class in the first September and he took French in the second September. Uh, Stan actually talked to those same people. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. had to know the truth. Right. And yet he continued to endorse Gerald Anderson because he was the center of that. Anderson was talking to him. Uh, no matter what we presented, Anderson was talking about um, the – crash being out near Horse Springs. And if you're in New Mexico, you're looking across the plains of San Augustine. It's on the western bank, uh, yeah, western bank of, of the plains of San Augustine. Well, Dr. Arizona state line there, right? Yeah, close to it. Herbert Dick was doing an archaeological expe- excavation at Bat Cave. <laughs> Again, another one of those things you don't want to say, uh, which is on the eastern side. Right. And I had a letter from Dick where he said, well, I didn't see anything like that. It was nothing there. We proved that Dick was there on the 1st of July. So he would have been there for the crash. Right. And I showed this to, to Stan. He said, well, we don't know which way the cave was facing. We don't know how deep they were in the cave. And I said, yes, we do. We know where the cave is. It's facing to the west. They couldn't stay in the cave overnight because it's not level. And the closest uh, level ground was about 100 yards from the entrance of the cave. So they're outside the cave. And if you're looking for human habitation in a cave, you're not very deep into it. Because if you're looking at the Paleo Indians in there, they didn't have a way to light the depths of the cave. So, yes, we know all of that stuff. And and Herbert Dick said, well, no, uh, there was nothing going on. Had it been going on, he would have seen it. So that kind of negated Gerald Anderson. And yet Stan continued to believe that Anderson, there was a grain of truth or something important about what Gerald Anderson had to say. No, he should be a footnote. This guy was a liar. End of story. And you and I, from the, from the get-go, 
we found it ludicrous, the idea that you, especially as the experienced, trained military helicopter pilot, the idea that here was a five-year-old child back in 1947, that from a ground viewpoint, that 50 years after the fact would be flown in by a helicopter with Robert Bigelow and Stanton Friedman and Don Berliner, and from an aerial viewpoint, as they approached, he would recognize the site that he hadn't been to in 50 years. Well, I mean, I have one, let me oh, have one other thing there. Prior to that flight, he identified like four different sites, right. including one that was close to where the, I always called it the whopping huge array, but it's the very large array, the radio telescopes there in uh, the Magdalena right. area of, right. of New Mexico. It's a uh, one yeah. north of the highway, I think it's Highway 60. That is so, right. Yeah. He, he changed he changed the location to suit his mood, I suppose. But I, I think that, you know, that's one of the problems with the UFO field. When we look at it, there are people who, who um, attach themselves to a case, whether it's the investigator or the witness, and they're not going to let go of it. No matter what kind of evidence is presented, they're going to find an excuse to reject that evidence, not following the science. It's known as being proactive. It's known as actually getting your hands dirty, going out into the field. And those, I mean, that very day, you and I were, were out there. We rendezvoused. We drove out there. We parked and we, you know, we walked some some distance where that windmill was on the side of that, uh, that, 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 that slight bluff, that type of thing. But the point is we were giving them the benefit of the doubt. It wasn't as though, okay, we closed this chapter from our, our computer keyboard and end of story. Whether it was you or Tom Carey and myself, we always made every effort to speak to every witness firsthand. We were at their homes. We were in the field. We were at the locations where this all went down. Well, so we let's 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 leave it let's let's leave it there because we're going to have to take the end of the program here. Uh, I will be back next week with Don Schmidt. <laughs> And we will continue our discussions in some of the UFO phenomena. We're going to talk about uh, Jacques Vallée's book, Trinity, for example, and what we know about that and what Don's experiences were with that. And look at some of the other aspects of the UFO phenomena that we haven't touched on in this program. Once again, the blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. My latest book is Understanding Roswell. And Don, your latest book is? latest book is the 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell. Just came there you out go. First, so thank you. Every everything available at Amazon.com. We will be back in 167 hours. So uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>